Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Before her heart, a mechanical aperture closed. Her heart, a mechanical aperture opened. She told her stomach, honey, be still. She told her teeth and her cheeks and her tongue, all the squabbling was quail close at hand. Her heart, a perennial shrub, persisted. She'd been waiting. She'd been waiting. She'd looked forward to this. She told her wrist and her waist and her ankles, all that rustling was quail in the rushes. To the skin on her left arm, keep watch. To her lungs, prepare all your rooms. Her heart, deciduous, bloomed. She breakfasted on rye toast spread with the hope sauce of bees and of thistle. She'd been waiting. She'd been waiting. In her rucksack, she tended the first crush of olives and nearly transparent, delicious meats so rare should she share her heart that tide pool would flood. She'd been waiting. She'd been waiting. She told the pit of her navel and the peaks of her nipples that cooing was quail coming near. The call was the response she'd expected all the days she'd looked forward to this. Though her heart, Brookbed, was damned, she kept two small thieves in their sockets alert. She commandeered all the rafts in her spine. She told her heart, take everything, when he handed his hand to her hand. And the bevy, beautiful in the bushes, flew. Language. Silence is one part of speech. The war cry of wind down a mountain pass, another. A stranger's voice echoing through lonely valleys. A lover's voice rising so close, it's your own tongue. These are keys to cipher. The way the high hawk's key unlocks the throat of the sky and the coyote's yip knocks it shut. The way the aspen's bells conform to the breeze while the rapids' drums define resistance. Sage speaks with one voice, pinion with another. Rock, wind her hand, water her, her brush, spells, and then scatters her demands. Some notes tear and pebble our paths. Some notes gather the bank we map our lives around. Long time gone, long time yet to come. Where jasmine lemon sweets wind, and salt slicks the breeze where sage spices sun drench there 
where the fragrant cloud nest drives the pump beat of my blood, I am home. Long time gone. Long time gone and don't know when I'm coming back. But see me there where the orange tree blossoms and the sky smells white as line-dried sheets. See me there, where jasmine, lemon sweets, wind, and salt slicks the hair you wear into the breeze, where cactus fruit is suckling pear and its sweet hidden waters everywhere. I am home. I'm gone, but I'll be back. Long time gone but I'll be coming back. The preachers eat out. There were maybe four of them, perhaps five. They were headed where? It does not matter. Only they were not home yet. We're not near anyone who could have cared. So hungry, they stopped there anyway. And when they heard, we don't serve your kind, one among them laughed, that's okay. We're not hungry for our kind. (laughs) We've come for food. And when the one waitress who would serve them, she had children at home, and these were tips, finished breaking their plates behind the building, he called her over to the table. Lady, my one regret is that we don't have appetite enough to make you break every damned plate inside this room. You are not the one Melinda sings her underbreast song to please. You, Joseph Freeman, who once would sing words the sermon could not say, the whole church waiting Sundays for the Freeman song, and especially waiting for the bass cry, such remembrance in your young body that was Joseph Freeman singing in meeting. You, Joseph, are not the one who will sit in the men's pew singing as you sang Sundays, surrounded by your brother, your father, your uncle, Melinda, your oldest friends, the whole church, maybe even the good Lord listening. No, Joseph, you are not the one whose back heat and resting weight that pew's wood will curve and cup itself to welcome. You are no more the one that Pew's arch would recognize today than you are the man who will hear tonight what new song Melinda in the rocking chair. No more your rocking chair than her rooms are any more your rooms. will catch under her breath and sing. When you were Joseph, When you had two rooms, you could give your wife your hands and ears and mouth inside. You listened. You let your wife keep you awake, trilling over what she'd cleaned that afternoon. A cameo. 
Her lips, a closed purse when she pronounced the M, opened for you on the E, wider on the O, strung on velvet. You wrapped a band around her neck, kisses ending where the cameo would fall at the hollow, that perfect frame. When you had two rooms and no one but your wife inside them, you could listen all night to the things she desired. Silk stockings, for instance. What, you asked, was wrong with the stockings she wore? These wool ones? You touched the leg she lifted toward you. I would be just as happy not to wear them a minute more. And didn't you listen to her? Didn't you lend your hand and help Melinda peel those old stockings away? Now you are a mouth tasting dust and salt and finger flesh. You are all your remaining teeth arranged to satisfaction, gums just pink enough to please. You are a saleable mouth and your tongue does nothing. It does not curl into a consonant. It does not shape the vowels that would add up to a plea because you are not Joseph Freeman, night guard of Melinda. The ones who wait on your voice are not the ones whose listening would make a morning right. Before, you were nothing but an auctioned mouth and a pair of hands that only mind commands. They made you little more than a brine-sealed back and crossed-hatched thighs. Your tongue twisted in quick tempos as you learned each new instrument's name. Cat-o'-nine-tails, pudding stick, ordinary oar. You'd rather keep silent than call up more cognates. You, Joseph Freeman, who once would sing words. Taming Shad. Two things he didn't understand. Even after she let him pull her up into the wide hug of the sycamore branches. And after she took to tying her hair in red ribbons, he used Sunday wages to buy for her. What had Molly's little nod bent that first day her body, a blue bag gripped in one hand, ran across his shadow? Laundry day. So she was busy. But something made her take time to answer a question he hadn't realized he'd already asked. That was one thing he couldn't understand. What made her nod yes to a dusty bruise of a man just walked up to the Jackson place after how long trotting behind his newest master and his master's paint? The other thing was why, after all those nights studying the creases in his thumbs, the lobes of his ears, the direction sweat took running off his belly, she stayed away from him until the morning glories that had opened in his eyes closed again. Did she have to remind him wasn't nothing to be seen that he could look after? And something like a response. Almost like they wanted it. 
because she'd heard him laugh through new moon darkness. And she knew he'd fallen. And she knew before she turned, he'd be crawling like a crawdad, rock to loam. Because she tried to love the straight back and neck he'd erected to recollect the man he'd been before. Because she found herself adding up his usefulness like some kind of auctioneer. She showed him the dark coils areoling both her breasts and all the ways she bent and lifted, bent and lifted, steady, strong. She let him believe he was past due for a harvest and her hands were the right ones now to hold the scythe. She made quick work of pleasure. The boy's smile bunked down in his eyes, she claimed. Her tongue found the place in his mouth where the teeth were gone, where he'd hold his corn cakes until they grew soft enough to chew. History had bedded him in all of this. His own history, and failures not his own. Before he'd tramped in, she'd watched another man, a man she'd thought she hated. Watched his body opened, 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 until blood had married brine. She'd watched that man be whipped into something good for nothing more than fertilizing clay, and she'd thought buckshot would have been a brand of kindness if sprayed into him just then. But even after his hard going, she did not miss him very much. Anyone she chose could be shucked like surplus property tomorrow, but that hadn't been enough to warn her off of picking him that night. Because she knew if she set her sight on nothing, she'd get nothing in return. She'd walked with Shad. But because the night progressed so, because there were some clouds, no stars, no moon, he tripped over the branch of a dead and down tree. In all that darkness, there, without a moon, even then, she had not fallen. She thought to say so, but she did not say so. She did nothing but say she was sorry for him. She did not use her mouth to say this. Could he not listen to her hands? They spoke softly, articulating her condolences to his torn and bleeding skin. Sunday morning. Desire swung like that, like her legs in procession, like perfume from a censer on its linked chain heavy as smoke in the hold's light, desire. A church, a cathedral, the body in that robe, the robe sash swinging, the progress through the sinning body to this sacred spot. A man kneeling, a man with head bent, a man 
lifting his prayer to a woman. Desire, desire, desire. Grant us grace. The blue. One will live to see the caterpillar rut everything they walk on. Sea cliff buckwheat cleared, relentless ice plant to replace it. The wild fields bisected by the scenic highway. Canyons covered with cul-de-sacs, gas stations, comfortable homes. The whole habitat along this coastal stretch endangered. Everything, everyone, everywhere in it in danger as well. But now they're logging the one stilling hawk Smith sights. The conspiring grasses, The Coryopsis Matoni's boot barely spares, and netted, a solitary blue butterfly. Smith ahead of him chasing the stream, Matoni wonders if he plans to swim again. Just like that, the spell breaks. It's years later, Matoni lecturing on his struggling butterfly. How fragile. If his daughter spooled out the fabric she'd chosen for her wedding gown, raw taffeta burled, a bright-hued tan, perhaps Matoni would remember how those dunes looked from a distance, the fabric balanced between her arms, making valleys in the valley, the fan above her mimicking the breeze. He and his friend loved Everything softly undulating under the coyous wind. And the rough truth as they walked through the land scratch and scrabble. And no one was there then besides Matoni and his friend walking along Dolan's Creek in that part of California they hated to share. The ocean a mile or so off, anything but passive, so that even there, in the canyon, they sometimes heard it smack and pull well-braced rocks. The breeze basic, salty, bitter, sour, sweet. Smith trying to identify the scent, tearing leaves of manzanita, yelling, This is it! Here! This is it! His hand to his nose, his eyes having finally seen the source of his pleasure, alive. In the lab, after the accident, he remembered it, the butterfly. How good a swimmer Smith had been, how rough the currents there at Half Moon Bay. His friend alone with reel and rod, Matoni back at school early that year, his summer finished too soon. Then, all of them together in the sneaker wave. And before that, the ridge, congregations of pinking blossoms, and one of them bowing, scaring up the living, the frail and flighty beast too beautiful to never be pinned. Those nights Matoni worked without his friend, he remembered too. He called his butterfly Smith's Blue. Out of the darkness. In the beginning was the darkness. And the darkness drew together. 
and the darkness warmed the darkness, and it was not alone. But some of the darkness began to pull away. The great crowd of darkness was disturbed. This is how darkness turned against darkness. Some of the darkness lost hair in the fight. This hair fell to the historian's spiders. Each relays the filaments just as she discovers them. Some of the darkness lost legs in the fight. These ran on and still dashed through dreams. Where the blood of the darkness met the sweat of more darkness, in that place, a tree. In the tree, some quaking possum, below it, a hound. Where the tears of the darkness fell, high grass grew, through which run rivulets of an antlered herd. Whenever darkness struck darkness, one fewer in the herd, a new cat sprung from the grasses. The darkness went down, and the darkness rose up. More darkness fell while some rose still. The movement of the darkness as it fought against darkness was like the movement of oceans. Soon, some of the darkness was ocean. The remaining darkness was sky. What darkness had fallen might rise. What darkness had risen might lose wind and fall. This could go on forever. The rising of darkness, it's falling. Some of the darkness lost teeth in the fight. These became teeth of the ancient, vigilant shark. Some of the darkness lost nails in the fight. These became thorns in the bramble. Some of the darkness lost sight in the fight. Some of the darkness lost reason. Some of the darkness got away from the darkness. That darkness alone drew a star. That's a state I'll never go back to. Once I got over the problem of not knowing how, I couldn't go back to not curbing my tires. But it took a while to get past forgetting to register street cleaning hours. And love, love was my handicap. Though I had no permit to hang from my rear view, so I collected seven or ten little slips. I had every intention of paying off, except I skipped town for the summer and returned to find the guy staying in my apartment tossed them. I'll admit, I was relieved not to face these expensive reminders of the girl I'd been. How stupid I was about life in the city. And as I'd finished school, was moving south for good this time. And as I lived then in a state of great anticipation, the potential of a record never crossed my mind. But now, on account of those parking tickets, I can't go back there with a car. Though everyone who loves me knows I love that tiny window each October in the south nub of the state you can't reach without driving. I missed it once 
and waited a whole year, regretting the lost chance to track the linden leaves' tiny migrations. The next fall, refusing to endure that state of desolation again, I asked everyone who loves me to please meet me just south of the border. We ordered green mussels. We ordered popcorn shrimp. The shrimp beat the mussels to the table. I was the only one who hadn't filled up on a grande egg cream. I drank for pleasure, but since I left that state, I haven't found any delicious enough to entice. So I ate all the mussels. Crouched later in that state of betrayal that comes from learning some green things aren't good. Considering the law of inertia that any body in motion stays in motion unless faced with an equal or opposite force, peer pressure, scatology, the projected near-immediate devastation of world forests should certain highly populated nations generally adopt the U.S. model of toilet paper consumption, germ theory, my own role in depressing the mean average of common human hygiene, I knew I never wanted to be anywhere near that state again. <laughs> with extradition, with reciprocity, I was hardly away at all. When I first rolled over, my parents were pleased. And just as quickly, I left the state of never having rolled before. Ditto slumping on all fours to crawling. And once I could walk, we all knew I was never going back. I pulled myself up and started moving. I grabbed at everything I could reach. Until I learned better, I'd put my tongue on anything. Once, I ate papaya straight from the tree. And then, I mourned the abject state of the crated fruit I, in my ignorance, thought I loved. I denounced such love. I married a local. I taught myself how to keep his garden. I swear, I'm staying away from that state for good. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.